those parents who would like their children to be a part of preschool praise or children's church can dismiss them at this time. And I would encourage the rest of you to take out of your bulletin the sermon outline as it contains the text that we'll be looking at today and the outline, some fill in the blanks so you can remember what the Lord has taught you in this text and perhaps uh, pull it out of your Bible a little bit later today or this week and remember what the Lord has taught you, perhaps discuss it with your family. A couple weeks ago, someone in Illinois won the second largest lottery sum ever, $1.28 billion. Now, fortunately for that person, Illinois has a law that a lottery winner does not have to reveal his or her identity. And you've probably read articles about how winning the lottery can ruin your life. And we also know how a rapid rise in popularity can also change a person's life and ruin them. Well, today in our series called Encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John, we're going to see how Jesus handles the great rise in his popularity and his encounter with the fickle multitude and his eventual rejection from them, and then his testing of the twelve. Our text today follows the passage that I read in our scripture reading. After Jesus had miraculously multiplied the loaves and the fish and fed over 5,000 people, he was wildly popular. He withdrew to a mountain because he perceived that they were about to take him by force and make him king. The disciples left by boat to go to Capernaum, but that evening the sea became rough and then they saw Jesus coming to them, walking on water, and immediately when when he got to the boat, they were on land. The next day, The crowd realized that Jesus and the disciples had gone to Capernaum and they got in their boats and they found them. And there Jesus confronted them. He told them that they were seeking him because they wanted more food. He told them that they ought to be seeking the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man will give to them. They asked What should they do to do the works of God? And Jesus said the work of God is to believe in the one that the Father had sent. They asked him what sign he would perform. They said Moses gave his people bread from heaven. But Jesus then said God, not Moses, gave them manna. And God gives them the true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. And they exclaim, Give us this bread always. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them how he is the bread of life. Everyone who believes in him should have eternal life or shall have eternal life. And Jesus then says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Jesus then describes in very vivid language what it means to believe in him. They must feed on his flesh drink his blood to have eternal life. And so we pick up right after that 
in our text in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69. Follow along as I read once again God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning whose those were who did not believe, or who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Thus far the reading of God's Word. The first point that God shows us from our text is how many disciples wrestled with Jesus' teaching. Who are these other disciples that are not included in the twelve here? They're they're those that have been following Jesus around, listening to his teaching, observing some of his miracles. And at this point, there were thousands of them. And this is probably the point in Jesus' ministry where he is the most popular. Some followed him because they mistakenly understood the prophecies of the coming Messiah to refer to a man who would lead a revolution, who would overcome Roman occupation and establish a Davidic empire. Many were following him because of the spectacle of his miracles, particularly this last one where he multiplied the bread and the fish and he fed thousands. There were people there who wanted food. But when Jesus started confronting them with their motives for following him and his teaching on the true nature of belief, They began to grumble because it was a hard saying. That term hard does not just mean it was hard to understand, but it was hard to accept, hard to take in. What really disturbed them was Jesus saying they must feed on his flesh and drink his blood or they would have no life in them. Many were taking this literally. And to them it sounded like he was promoting some form of cannibalism. Their lack of spiritual understanding was similar to the way Nicodemus responded to Jesus' teaching that you must be born again. He thought, literally, how am I going to go back into my mother's womb? And it was similar to the Samaritan woman who was told by Jesus that he was living water and she kept on thinking, literally, he was talking about Jacob's well and the water in Jacob's well. See, what Jesus was communicating could only be understood with spiritual discernment. Food and drink must be ingested for 
it to be beneficial to our bodies. And likewise, to believe in Christ means we must receive Him. We must accept Him. We must assimilate Him. We must appropriate Christ. It means we must enter into a life-transforming union with Christ. He indwells us by faith. And when this occurs, we have true life forever. Some mistakenly think that Jesus is teaching about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in this text. But he is not. He has not instituted the Lord's Supper yet. Plus, taking the Lord's Supper does not give you salvation and eternal life. No, Jesus said in verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He was speaking of the near future when he would offer up his body and his blood on the cross to atone for the sins of his people. And so here is symbolism, the symbolism of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood points to belief, belief in his vicarious substitutionary sacrifice. It's believing and taking that in, receiving it. We're familiar with the expression, you are what you eat. Well, faith is symbolically ingesting Christ so that he and his work are a part of us. Now, following and believing in Christ meant something different from anything the crowd had heard before. When the Jews and the disciples complained and grumbled about this vivid picture of belief, Jesus didn't back down, did he? No, he taught it even more forcefully and more vividly that his flesh was true food and his blood was true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. So we can understand why many of them didn't have spiritual understanding and they said, who can listen to this? Well, how did Jesus respond? In verses 61 through 66, we see point two, Jesus' response and their desertion. We read that Jesus knew not only what the crowds were saying, but what they were thinking. He knew they were grumbling about this. And so he says to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? See what Jesus is saying here? First he's saying he existed before he came to this earth. He was with the Father in heaven for eternity past. Before he was incarnate as man. He says, if you are offended at this, you will certainly be offended when you see me ascending to where I came from. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, we need to understand that when Jesus talks about ascending back into heaven. It's always connected with his crucifixion and resurrection. They're considered an unbreakable sequence. In other words, he's referring to ascending by way of his crucifixion. And he's saying here, if you are offended by my explanation of belief, described as eating my flesh and drinking my blood, then you will certainly be offended at my crucifixion. If people stumbled at this discourse, much more will they stumble 
at his death, his suffering on the cross. And then in verse 63, he explains why they cannot understand these spiritual truths. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This reminds us of Jesus' teaching of Nicodemus and how the Spirit has to cause a person to be born again. This is what he's saying. Only as the life-giving Holy Spirit informs you can you understand these words. The fleshly mind is limited in what it can understand. These truths cannot be understood or yield the correct interpretation with faith by the flesh. All this is teaching Jesus' presupposition that the work of the Spirit must go first. The Spirit is the one who must regenerate our hearts, give us a new nature, and give us the gift of faith and repentance. Jesus adds in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then John explains that Jesus knew from the beginning whose those were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said that this is why he told them that no one can come to him unless it is granted by the Father. And this is referring back to verse 44 that I read earlier. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draw in the Greek actually means drag. So he's telling us why some did not believe. Unbelief is expected apart from divine grace. He is conveying very clearly that if left up to ourselves, we will never come to faith. We will never understand spiritually. It's impossible for anyone unless the Father works in their hearts first through the Holy Spirit and draws them. And this, of course, is the doctrine of the depravity of man. And it's also the doctrine of how God must irresistibly draw those he has chosen to give to Christ by faith. And then we read in verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And he's referring to this larger group of disciples, not the 12 that had been following Jesus around. There was a dramatic change at this point in the number who followed Jesus after this. Remember, most of the disciples here being referred to were never true believers. They followed Jesus for various reasons, mostly because they wanted something out of him. But they refused now to believe in him and his words. They no longer walked with him. They went back to their homes. They left behind their former way of thinking, never intending to return to Jesus. And it was, most, by most uh, Bible scholars, because of the Greek that's used here, a large number who left, perhaps most of them. And although Jesus was not surprised at this, you can imagine what the 12 disciples felt. All of a sudden, thousands have left, and there's just a handful of people who are there now. It could have been very discouraging to them. And so the final section of our text is verses 67 through 69. We see Jesus tests the 12 and Peter's response. 
This section is of great importance because this is the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And up to this point, it was looking like Jesus was going to lead a very popular and large movement. But when most began to see what Jesus really stood for, his claims of being pre-incarnate God, his call to radical faith in him and the work of his flesh and blood, they didn't like it. And a great number stopped following him. And now comes the big test for the twelve. They'd heard this teaching, and after hearing it, they saw hundreds, maybe thousands of followers leave the movement. Verse 67 is a dramatic moment when Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks, do you want to go away as well? He's testing their faith. In the Greek, it's stated in the negative. You surely do not also wish to go back, do you? See, he knows that he will receive a negative reply because he knows that 11 of them are believers. 11 minus Judas. He knows that they have faith in him. Peter being the impetuous man that he was, but also being a spokesman for the twelve, answers him in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There are two parts to Peter's response. The first is, to whom shall we go? In other words, there is no other we can turn to. You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the Savior. You are the Holy One of God. No one else. No one else can satisfy the yearning of our hearts, the deepest needs of our souls. Now, it's important to know that the disciples at this point may not have understood all that much of what Jesus has taught about belief. They wouldn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they do have faith that Jesus' words are truth. His words are eternal life. They do have faith that He is the Holy One of God. That expression, the Holy One of God, is a messianic title. It was mentioned in our call to worship from Psalm 16, referencing God the Father not allowing the Messiah, your Holy One, to see corruption. And then the only other time it's used in the Gospels is Mark chapter 1, verse 24, when it says, There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus tells him to be silent and casts the demons out. This is a term that's meant to uh, connote the highest possible place with God the Father. It means the one who's been set apart and holy to save his people from their sins. So we've seen in our text how the disciples wrestled with Jesus' teaching. His response and their desertion. And then finally, 
his testing of the 12 and then Peter's response. So what? How should these truths impact the way that we think and we live as believers? What application does God want us to take away from this text? Well, let me give you three points to consider. Number one, have you spiritually eaten the body and drank the blood of Christ? That's a shocking question, isn't it? I know, it's tough language, but this is the language of our Lord in the text that we read during our scripture reading. He was communicating something very critical about true saving faith. True saving faith is not just intellectual assent about who Jesus is and what he has done for our salvation. It's taking Christ in. It's receiving him. It's ingesting and digesting him and his work. It's accepting, assimilating, appropriating Christ and his work. It's being united to Christ. So he becomes your source of spiritual food and sustenance and life. It's specifically taking Christ into you and what he did through his flesh and blood. Through his flesh and blood, he provides righteousness. Through his flesh and blood, he provides atonement for our sins. You see, the Bible tells us that we are born separated from God because of our sinful nature. Our sinful nature has been inherited, passed down to us from the first man, Adam. And we're told in the scriptures, God is utterly holy. And he requires absolute, 100% perfect obedience to his Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. And we fail to do this by a long shot because we're sinners. We violate his commandments. Furthermore, God is perfectly, 100% just. He cannot look the other way and ignore our sin. He must punish all sin in hell. And we are unable to pay this debt. We're unable to atone for our sins. And we, apart from the grace of Christ, exist under His condemnation and wrath awaiting the judgment day. And then the Bible also tells us that we cannot discern spiritual things because we are dead spiritually. We cannot generate true saving faith or repentance on our own. This is the predicament. And it's a hopeless situation. Except God planned before the beginning of time to provide for his people salvation by himself and by grace alone. He determined along with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that the Son would come to be our substitute. He would come to this world as a man and earn for us righteousness. And He would provide atonement for our sins through His death on the cross. Our sins were laid upon Him and He received the wrath, the punishment that we deserved. In other words, he received the equivalent of hell for everyone that he came to die for through his suffering and bleeding and death on the cross. 
but he gloriously rose from the dead on the third day, verifying that he was in fact God the Messiah and that his righteousness and his flesh and blood payment was acceptable to the Father for our salvation. And so all those whose hearts have been changed, who've been born again and believe in Christ and turn from their life of rebellion against God are declared righteous before God, forgiven of all of their sins. They're made members of Christ's spiritual kingdom. They're adopted into God's family. They're united with the Godhead and they're given the gift of eternal life. And so I ask you, has that radical change taken place in you? Have you this kind of faith where Christ and His work have become a part of you that He is now your source of salvation and life? You see, the work of Christ on the cross is scandalous. How people respond to this scandal determines their destiny. And people naturally do not accept that God had to send His only Son to live and to bleed and to die in their place. They don't want to accept the fact that they can't do anything to earn salvation. The cross proclaims that we're all failures when it comes to meeting God's perfect standards. It's also offensive to people that this is God's only way to be forgiven and accepted by Him. But this is what Jesus is saying. You must eat His flesh and drink His blood to have eternal life. Secondly, it's a great temptation for Christians, for pastors, for churches, for denominations to water down the gospel so that it appears less radical, less offensive, more culturally acceptable. But we need to note here, number two, Jesus did not preach what people wanted to hear or those things that people thought they needed. This crowd, what did they want from Jesus? They wanted a revolution. They wanted changing of the guard. They wanted miracles. They wanted food, miraculous food for life from Jesus. But Jesus preached that he was God the Son who existed with God the Father from eternity past. That he came to this world to become a man in order to give his flesh and blood as an atoning sacrifice for sins. He also taught people they truly didn't believe and follow Him unless the Father drew them and caused them to be born again and believe. He taught His words were spiritual and eternal life. But people couldn't discern them and believe them unless the Spirit regenerated them and gave them illumination. If you believe, it's because it has been granted by the Father and the Spirit gave you life through the Word. You see, when the Word of God and the Gospel are taught and preached with simple clarity, most will find it hard to accept and listen to. We may not see many people flocking to the true Jesus and His Word and Gospel, unless, of course, 
the Lord causes a revival to take place in our land, and that is certainly possible, and we pray for that. But we must remain committed as a church and as God's people to preach the Word, to teach the Word faithfully, to teach the Gospel, trusting that the Holy Spirit will regenerate people and give them faith and repentance. If the Spirit that gives life is at work, then we will see that occurring. We should never be dismayed, though, at the world's resistance or opposition to Christ or the unpopularity of the gospel message and the cross. Our confidence is that God will work through the power of the Holy Spirit in His Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And as 1 Peter 1.23 says, people are born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. My final application point is this. Jesus tests us at times and asks, you surely do not also wish to go back, do you? There will be times when we will be tempted when we will be tempted to go along with the crowds who, who find it difficult to accept Jesus' teaching, the teaching of the Word of God. Perhaps when we're going through difficult times or when we're grieving, we're wondering, where is God? What is He doing? Is He sovereign? Is He really doing what's good for me? When we go through hard times, when we experience the rejection or hostility of others for our faith, when we see evil apparently triumphing, when we see people we thought were Christians rejecting the faith or making serious compromises, Jesus comes to us and says, do you want to go away as well? And in our confusion and doubt, we may waver a little bit because we don't understand what God's doing. But if you have been born again, you will conclude, along with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the conviction from which faith always proceeds. Peter recognized there is no alternative for salvation. There is no alternative for eternal life than to trust in Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Now, Peter said this in the company of the other ten disciples who also believed. And I think he received strength and confidence knowing that they believed. And that is one of the reasons that each of us need each other in the church. We need to help one another strengthen our resolve that there is no one other to go to, that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. You see, they had a history with Jesus of knowing He was Lord, that there was no other, that only He satisfied their souls. And as we gather and hear one another's faith and testimony, we also are strengthened to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Maybe you are in a similar point where your faith is being tested right now. Well, Christ wants to strengthen your faith in Him by causing you to see that there is no one else who will satisfy 
There is no one else who can provide salvation and eternal life. That His Word is what you need to carry on. You need to feed upon Christ. And you cannot feed upon Him without feeding on His Word. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, We are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So feeding on Christ means feeding on His words and heeding them and allowing the Holy Spirit to bless us through them. Our faith is strengthened as we feed on His word every day. And as we feed and believe then we will also grow in our knowledge and understanding of our experience of union with Christ and salvation because He is the Holy One of God. Let me pray. Father, thank You for this text and the deep meaning of what it means to have faith in Christ. Oh Lord, help us to continue to feed upon Christ through his word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life. Thank you that we have partaken of you and your work for us. And therefore, we have your righteousness. We have forgiveness of our sins. And we have the guarantee that we will be with you in heaven forever. Oh Lord, strengthen your people so that when we are tempted to flee to desert you that we will come back and say no one else has the words of eternal life where else would we go we pray this in jesus name amen please stand